There's got to be some kind of middle ground here where we lock yeah. up fewer people in this country, we get them the treatment that they need, and then we take some risks, right? Because I think of yeah. even our own coverage on this kind of stuff. We're so hard on the Chase of Boudins of the world, and they deserve it in a lot of cases. But at the same time, it takes some courage to loosen things up and say, we need to do things differently. I think there's a difference between loosening things up and like completely untying things. Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, Halloween is upon us. Any big plans? It is. No, I actually hate Halloween, and I make that my whole personality oh, for the second half of Halloween. I Yeah, no, I just can't stand it. So. Tell me more, because it's probably my second favorite holiday. I just feel like it's like adults being children, and that's just like and why is that celebrated. Bad? I don't know. It's cute for kids, but it's not cute when you're drunk and sloppy and yeah. slutty. I don't know. It's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, <laughs> What about you? I love it, you know, from being a kid, I loved it. But when I was a school principal, we used to have, uh, we used to take the basement of our school and turn it into a haunted school. And I had this whole story I used to tell about how, you know, our school was 100 years old. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 100 years ago, there was some serum that we created to help kids perform better on tests. And it and it led to like all these like zombie kids that mm -hmm. we've been storing in the basement. See, it's cute for kids. Yeah. Like that's fine to me, but yeah. I don't know. It was like a crazy haunted house. We didn't do any waivers, which was insane. And we mm -hmm. had the kids were part of my cast. Like Elias, who works for us, was part of the cast too. And oh, we, it was <laughs> super unsafe. There were smoke machines involved, clowns uh -huh. whose heads would turn around 360 degrees and all that. It was so much fun. And it was a huge distraction and a very expensive distraction. I had a photo, one of our, our staff members who's still down there found all of my old Halloween stuff in some mm -hmm. warehouse that we were storing it. And was like, what the heck is all this? Like there's, I had this little robotic, uh, like a skeleton woman who would type on a laptop and her head would turn around like uh -huh. 360 degrees. So I love huh. Halloween. And then in okay. New York before COVID, I used to throw a big Halloween party every year for a different charity every year. We used to run out of synagogue. So I guess I'm one of those people who mm. I get, hasn't fully grown up. That's your second favorite holiday? Yeah, the first? Fourth of July is my favorite just because okay. where I grew up in Staten Island, there's a big parade. It's my brother's yeah. birthday and my family, we, we go big on Fourth of July. Mm. But since COVID, I haven't really celebrated either that much. So this will be the first year I think that I properly celebrate Halloween in a while. Well, you can enjoy for the two of us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, Locked we've got a couple of announcements, Ricky, on the front end. We've got a new podcast called the Citizen Stewart Podcast. And this is a podcast that I'm co-hosting with my friend Chris Stewart, who is a, a former school board member and education activist and CEO of a a nonprofit media company that focuses on education and kids. And if you're listening to this podcast and you want more education content and or if you want somebody, uh, you want to hear me have somebody come at me from the left, uh, that's Chris Stewart. I often get messages like we should have a socialist or we should have somebody who's more left than you because I think people view me probably correctly as a complicated progressive. Then this is a good podcast for you if you want to listen to that. And so you can go to Citizen Stewart wherever you get your podcast, Spotify, iTunes, etc. We also have a voicemail, 321-200-0570. That's 321-200-0570. We announced it at the end of last week's show. We've already got a bunch of voicemails. We're going to listen to one at the end of the show and respond to it. And it's just part of us wanting to hear more from our audience. We're seeing our audience grow so much. Like I was looking at it this morning. We're now in the top 25 of political podcasts in the whole country. And so I want to thank our listeners. And as part of us just evolving. We want to have more of an interactive relationship with our audience. But with that, Ricky, we've got an interesting show today. We're going to talk about AI art, artificial intelligence. We're going to talk about the implications for artists and consumers alike. Then we're going to turn to a tragic series of overdose deaths in New York City. And these were three high achieving professionals, young professionals, and it's created, their deaths have created a renewed focus on our failed war on drugs and what we could do about it. But first, Let's talk about Korean pop. There is this band called BTS, Ricky. Mm -hmm. Why are we talking about them today? So they have seven young male members who are now all going into military service, which is a requirement in South Korea um, and planning to reunite in 2025, which goes to show that in a country like that, there are no excuses, especially because they're bringing $5 billion annually into the South Korean economy. So, and they're really internationally loved. So um, in Korea, all able-bodied men 18 to 35 are required to do um, a stint of service 
along with other countries like Russia, Austria, Switzerland, and Denmark. And some countries even require the same of women, including Norway, Sweden, and the Netherlands to varying degrees. And so it's renewed kind of an interesting conversation, especially as we're potentially on the brink of a major conflict in Europe at the moment. I think this is an important time to have a renewed conversation about what service looks like. Um, Obviously, very few Americans, when you look at the percentages, actually do end up in armed services, less than 1%. There's different kinds of services. And so there's a renewed question around, should this be mandatory? Should it be compelled? Should it be socially compelled? Should it just, should we just keep going and not serving our country? It's an interesting question. Yeah. And in our country, uh, young men like me have to when I'm not now, but when I was a young man, we have to register for the draft, but we haven't called anybody up since the 70s. Mm-hmm. You called up yesterday, somebody really interesting on this subject, um, Stanley McChrystal, who commanded our forces in Afghanistan and who's been a big proponent of national service. Uh, what did he have to say? Yeah, so he, um, in his, in the recent years, he's run a Service Year Alliance, which is a nonprofit promoting not mandatory service, but essentially he advocates for socially compelled service in the sense that if you don't do it, it's kind of looked down upon. Voluntary, but expected. And here's what I mean by that. If you if you say mandatory, because that's my secret wish, if I had, that's my fantasy, we make it mandatory, but it polls so terribly that almost no Americans support it if it's mandatory. But if it's voluntary, but when we say expected, if somebody wants to go into politics later, they wouldn't dare run for Congress without having done service. If somebody wants to, you know, do other things, if they want to feel comfortable in society, they don't feel like they did their part. You know, you never want people to be at the cocktail party and, and be asked, what, did, what service did you do? And they'd have to go, uh. And so that's what I mean. You want that cultural norm pressure that everybody feels like they should. What do you make of this? Do you think he's right? Should we make it mandatory? Or is there something short of that that you think could be really effective here? He believes in like a kind of gap year sort of thing where it's between high school and college, which I don't know that I necessarily agree that it has to be national service, but I do think that that sort of um, provision for young people can be really fruitful. And we kind of just have a system where we just plow kids through high school and then into college and then into jobs. And they don't really stop and look at the broader scheme of things. If that means for some people that that's a form of national service, whether it's like volunteering domestically or serving in the military, whatever that, whatever form that might take. I think that's a net positive thing. I don't know that I necessarily feel as strongly about um, having to pull young people into doing that right now, especially with like the economic hardships that they're having with building careers and getting through school at the moment. But then again, if you incentivize it with some tuition or some long-term benefits or in our society, I think that I, I'm amenable to making it like an, an interesting social option for people. Yeah, there are lots of countries that have mandatory services. It often starts with military. So Israel is is an example where both men and women have to serve in the military. But there are you know European countries like Austria that have mandatory military service, but you can conscientiously object and do other types of service. Mm-hmm. I think in this country, we obviously have the military, but what he's getting at is if you don't go into the military by choice, there's very little at this point in this polarized country that's going to propel you to be, you know, arm in arm with somebody from a different geographic background from you, political background, racial background from you. Mm-hmm. And it seems like in, in some ways, it's not just viewed as a solution to discrete problems. Like how do we protect our country or how do we get teachers into the classroom? But how do we solve our divisions in our country? And I think that could be a fascinating development like you could imagine conservatives and liberals being for this for different reasons right you know on one hand mm. it's very patriotic on the other hand it, it it could it's a version of government potentially solving problems which liberals tend to be very excited about yeah i mean i'm definitely opposed to anything mandatory but i don't i don't i'm not opposed to expanding options right now um at the federal level we have americorps and peace corps we have nonprofits like teach for america youth built and the boys and girls club and five thousand service year opportunities across the country and whether that means kind of pulling that constellation of different organizations together in a more cohesive way and showing kids coming out of high school that this is an option and maybe a way to to build a little income or to potentially get a break on tuition or get credits going forward if you want to go to school. I think that's an interesting um, that's an interesting sort of idea to me. But I, I definitely don't believe that compelled service, especially with the attitudes that we have in this country, like I don't think you can just pull that back together post-Vietnam. I don't think that's something that people are amenable to. I think it's an intrusion into people's um, freedom to decide what they want to do when they're 18. And um, I think... 
anything mandatory gets way too complex for me and way too like i i am a patriotic person but i'm very allergic to mandated patriotism and yeah and it's almost an oxymoron right if it's mandated is it even patriotism but the constitution 13th amendment has a prohibition on involuntary servitude that probably creates issues for people trying to make it mandatory anyway so i'm with Mm -hmm. mccrystal that in my perfect world i would be amenable to mandatory but i think it's such a theoretical debate that the the ground then shifts to how do we incentivize this and create programs that make it attractive to people and that's where i think i really wish biden took this student loan relief and deployed it as national service mm-hmm. saying here are the jobs that we really need nurses doctors social workers you know people to respond to disaster relief people yeah. to do conflict resolution in cities and saying do these jobs do them for a certain amount of years do it in a way that's organized so that we can actually create that depolarization effect where I'm taking a kid from Abbeville, Alabama and a kid from Staten Island and putting them together in a program together. That would have been really cool. And maybe it's not too late, but I would have loved to have seen the debt relief combined with service. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, we also have for military veterans occasionally look at a cutoff of tuition and some help when they get back home. And I think that that's a model that we could expand. But I would also say, like, by and large, I don't believe that service needs to be necessarily national and governmental. Like, we know that a lot of governmental agencies are not as efficient as their private counterparts. And so if this means that we just kind of create a societal expectation, especially post-COVID, I think it's a perfect time to say gap years are actually a helpful thing for young people. There's a ton of cultures around the world that do that. If it means doing some volunteerism or whatever it means, like I think you should have the freedom to decide that for yourself and to decide whether you want to serve in a government role or in a nonprofit role or or just take some time and read some books. I think that should be allowed too. But I think like restoring that norm that young people should have an exploratory chapter and encouraging them to take these sort of routes in the process, I I believe is a good thing. However, as soon as you get into the, it has to be a government program, I think, you, I think you'll lose a lot of people. I think if we do a combination, because I think alone, the civil, civil society and the private sector aren't solving this problem. Obviously, there are small examples that are inspiring at times. Teach for America is an example mm-hmm. like that. When I was starting in my first school, I hired a lot of Teach for America teachers and they came, I had people from all over the country, different backgrounds. They tended to be like in the highly educated, in some cases, either like really good state school or Ivy League, which was Teach for America at the time. I have some sense that they've evolved since mm-hmm. then. There also, there have been allegations that Teach for America has become more politically ideological since. And so it has all sorts of issues there. But Teach for America is such a drop in the bucket. I think the the thing that McChrystal was talking about in your interview, at times it seems like he was like, all right, because he's running an organization that seems to be trying yeah. to solve this both within and outside of government. What he's saying is only the government can really do this at a scale that can make a huge difference. I believe more in the smaller scale grassroots things as well, though. I think the bigger these institutions get, the less or the more diluted each individual's contribution becomes to them. But I would also say like we're I think we've assumed that service means non-military service in some capacities or from some people. And I mean, a lot of other countries, it's a compelled military service. And I think that that's something that, especially as Americans, we need to consider very carefully if we were to ever go down that route, because I personally feel that there's not enough appreciation for the fact that we do have a voluntary military uh, group of people who decided on their own volition to go out and do that. And then many of them come home and they're not respected. They're not given dignity. They're not given housing. They end up on the streets. And I think that until we can figure out how service is something that someone can do and come back and be a productive member of society that's supported, we don't have a right to mandate it for anyone. Right. We got to make it attractive. And I I think there are these little piecemeal programs, AmeriCorps, Peace Corps, right? And then there, we've talked about you know, programs outside of the federal government. If you were to design a program, whether it was in government or outside of it, how would you go about it? Like everything you said, like totally agree. You know, we need to take care of our veterans. We need to provide them housing, mental health counseling. We need to fix the VA, which it seems like we've gotten better mm-hmm. at, like the the hospital services. Is there like a a profession or a mechanism that you would design? You'd be like, hey, that like and specifically think about Gen Z, who this would probably apply to, that you think would be particularly effective for your generation? You know, I'm less interested in 
designing something for other people, to be honest. Like a huge part of why I'm here today is because I took time off during college during the pandemic that I never would have otherwise. And I just had time to read books and to be to myself in lockdown and think on, in ways that I hadn't before that I wasn't being led down a road by a professor with their curriculum. Like I just had time to explore. And for me, that unstructured time was a really meaningful and impactful thing that I hope to be able to use to the benefit of other people through journalism now. And so I don't, I don't really, I, I'm a, I'm too individualistic to right. say that I want to mandate a program for other people. But there are like examples of universities that do co-op programs where it's one year where you actually get working like on the ground sort of experience in a field that you think you might want to go into and that might be a healthy thing to do or even if it's just internships for people like I think just having a little bit of time to pull back and making attractive options of service in some way shape or form whether it's just volunteering or whether it's doing something governmental I think it should be a more individualistic options yeah I hear you on that and I, I personally have a pull to individualistic endeavors and, and have an aversion to sort of forced cooperation in many ways mm -hmm. but I do think our countries, I think, almost has a cancer of individualism right now. We don't have this collective glue and we don't need to mandate it. But part of what I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around is like, how do we incentivize people to create those ties to each other? So I have one idea on this front, which is if we design a program, whether it was government or not, I would do it geographically because this is a way to avoid issues of race and economics and things like that that can get you into some trouble politically to say, if you come from a rural area, and you pick the profession that you want to work in, and this mm -hmm. could be tied to the student loan relief. So say you're a doctor, and you come from a rural area, go to an urban medical center, and that'll be part of your program. If you're from the urban center, go to a rural area. How do you control uh, for like cost of living and stuff like that, though? I mean, Just make it part of the program. I mean, Teach for America does this too, right? They work with local programs to say, if you're going to Mississippi, they have a certain cost of living adjustment to the stipend mm -hmm. they offer, and also what they negotiate in terms of your salary. So we go back and forth. And so I would pick the professions that we need as a society, both urban and rural, send people in the opposite directions is one option. The other option is to put people together who are from different areas, rural, urban. Because mm -hmm. I think rural, urban solves for so many things in our society because I think, obviously it's not a perfect approximation, but often the person who's living in the city, the person who's living in a small town are going to bring with them different parts of the culture war and the polarization, et cetera. Yeah. And if you can get them early and younger side by side to each other solving problems, mm -hmm. you know, either on behalf of a cause or a country, maybe that's, one step forward out of this sort of morass that we're in of yeah, division. I can see that. I think unfortunately that's what our college campuses are supposed to be, but then there's like conformity yeah. to the <laughs> point where you you can't really be an individual. There's like a specific way that it's kind of assumed that you're supposed to think. And so people's differences get really muted and they don't have these constructive conversations, which is really unfortunate. Like I, I think you're correcting for something that higher education should be doing in its own role. But I, I don't disagree that, especially with younger kids who aren't as like politically engaged and hyper like or attacking each other like college students tend to do. Um, it could be a constructive thing. And I, I mean, I'm I'm all for anything that will increase cohesion and understanding and seeing mutual humanity. Um, I'm just not for compelling it. Yeah. So. Well, let's take a big right turn here or left turn mm. to AI art. So we've talked about AI before, but it seems like a couple of things have happened recently in the yeah. art space that are just it's creating a lot of controversy. Where should we start here? Yeah, so the bulk of our conversation here, I think should be around AI art. But before we do that, since we are a podcast company and we're talking about people's jobs Podcasting potentially. Podcasting art, Ricky, yeah. I'm yeah, we're, well, so we're, we're talking about people's jobs being uh, pulled into question by AI doing it. And it looks like we're already being replaced. There is a really bizarro podcast situation where AI made Joe Rogan interview Steve Jobs. And it's probably the weirdest thing that I've ever and listened to. In case to. you you don't know, Steve Jobs has been deceased for a while. Yeah. And I'm not sure Rogan has ever interviewed him, but certainly. I don't so, think so. so. This is completely created using what? Like previous so interviews I guess the, and like things like the, that? Yeah, the AI must like analyze all the, they, they input 
each of them speaking in different contexts. It analyzes everything. It looks for patterns and it spits out like the best approximation of what this would look like essentially, which I think you'll notice that Rogan, because there's hours and hours and hours of him talking in a podcast setting, sounds like himself in a podcast setting. Whereas Jobs, who I think most of his recorded speech is in public speaking form, sounds a little more like that. I miss this. It's always fun. How's it going? Come on. Tell me about Jobs. <laughs> it's always good to see you, buddy. I'm so happy you came on, man. Yeah, it's great to be on the show. Your audience is just so different from your normal Apple users, and that's a good thing. It's cool. Well, you know, I was an Apple user way before I did this show. I've been a fan of yours, Macintosh, since the 1980s. Hmm. <laughs> so it's not perfect yet. It's no. <laughs> as it goes on, it actually does get better, and they make some like. In they, like the conversation actually becomes a conversation. Like Steve Jobs makes this weird analogy to um, like that Adobe software is like buying a car and then having to buy all four wheels sep- like separately, hmm. which is, I don't really know what that means, but it kind of feels like it could be profound. I'm not sure. Wow. But the awkward laughter kind of filters out as time goes on. But well, this is just better. the start. This is it just the start. Better. And it's already really impressive to me. Like this was better than I thought it would be. Yeah, this, this stuff is moving fast. It's going to get better and better and better. It yeah. makes me wonder, given that we've done so many podcasts, now what our ai podcast would sound like we, we're putting a lot out there in the universe where listeners you can create your own version of this maybe uh. better than what we're doing today <laughs> but it's obviously not specific to podcasts no. what else are we seeing out there so there's this new tool called dolly 2 which is wally from the pixar movie and salvador dolly's names combined which just went like open access free to the public it's an ai service where you can put in basically any prompt like kind of like almost like a Google search and it will create images for different versions backwards and give you like art in any style that you choose or any image that you choose. And the possibilities are kind of endless and people for the first time are playing with it themselves. I think the technology is way more advanced and like shockingly, I mean, it's really cool. And the more you do it, the better you get at it and the better the computer gets at it too. Speaking of Ricky, we created one here. So I put, we put into the computer here you, we gave them your image, which was on the internet anyway, so we didn't give it something and didn't really have it. And I, we wanted to have you reading Karl Marx in San Francisco. So folks who are <laughs> on YouTube, you can see it here. We'll put it up for you. Um, I'll tweet it out, but I'll give this to you. Uh, that is And it's, it's a Van Gogh style, just in honor uh-huh. of our, our young ladies from the UK oh, that wow. we talked about on the last huh. show. That's cute. Yeah, just make sure like to put her. some kind of protective service I, on it because know, there have been more uh-huh. vandalism of works uh-huh. of art since the last time we spoke. I think there's mashed potatoes thrown at a photo huh. somewhere I, in here. I wouldn't know it's Karl Marx, but I'm glad that that's the I know, I was disappointed that, that we couldn't get the words on there. Uh-huh. There must be something to do with Whose they don't want to. <laughs> no, no comment. But, <laughs> But this is this is fascinating stuff. There's also this uh-huh. program called PseudoWrite that a buddy of mine, Jamie, uh, we we had this unfinished uh, script that we were trying to write, and we're, he's busy, I'm busy, we haven't been able to finish it, and he put it into PseudoWrite, which is this AI writing program, okay. like the treatment that we had written, uh-huh. and had it finish it. Now he thinks it was a profound, like the PseudoWrite was amazing and smart, and he was like, look at this. I looked at it, and it was nonsense, like to me, mm-hmm. but. Just like the Steve Jobs interview, you get the sense that we're just just a couple years away from something really pathbreaking and mm-hmm. potentially destructive to a lot of people who write for a living, paint for a living, maybe yeah. those also podcast for a living. I mean, there's I think there's a fork in the road right now because people are looking at this either in a super optimistic way of like this is so cool and it's the future and it's going to make like doing graphic design on your own way easier or this is like the end of human creativity entirely and the art market has been very conflicted on this. In 2018, um, a piece of AI art sold at Christie's for 200, uh, sorry, $423,000. Um, and Colorado State Fair recently gave AI art a, a an award, which was very controversial. Mm. But then you have like, there's a subreddit that's refusing to have AI content on its uh, platform because it's low effort content, they say. And then Getty Stock Images, which obviously has a stake in making sure that images are actually the images that they purport to be. Um, they're trying to figure out how to filter out um, AI generated content on their platform. So I think the future is very ill-defined. Then there's also questions of like, 
you can obviously use this to make defamatory content to infringe on copyright to infringe on a living artist style and so there's a lot of questions that are abounding about how our existing legal system will approach this problem whether it'll be regulated in the same way that other forms of expression and speech are um, and, and there's differences among podcast companies and how they're handling this too like open ai which does dolly 2 is more conservative and you can't use like living people's names on it it hasn't given the ai any access to violent or pornographic material so it just doesn't even really know it exists so we yeah. can't spit that out um whereas dream studio which is one of their main competitors has what seems to me to be a more libertarian founder who thinks like this is in the hands of the people anyone can as open source anyone can help this ai learn and generate and it's your responsibility to use it wisely yeah, there are all these kinds of hypotheticals that you think about that are just mind-boggling, like creating nude pictures or lewd pictures of people, mm -hmm. and how do we deal with that in the public? An AI sport? video. I mean, now you have the audio portion. AI video is almost certainly the next thing. Meta's already working on that, so God knows what Zuckerberg will come up with. In my sense, I'm not an expert in this area of law, but my sense is if I, if you painted somebody, whether they're famous or not, and painted them nude or something, that's protected by free speech. But if you released a nude photo of somebody without their consent, that's illegal. Yeah. Now, what happens if you create a fake version, but based mm -hmm. on some kind of technology? Yeah. That's a question. Another question is like, you talk about copyright. Obviously it's infringement if you use somebody's words and you just give those words, right? Yeah. And it's plagiarism, it's infringement, et cetera. But what happens if you take their words, you put it into a computer and then the computer mimics the style? Is that infringement? Yeah. We don't know. And in the art sense, that's a very real issue that's happening right now. Um, Greg Rutkowski, he's this like sci-fi artist whose name is being used consistently. Um, like you can basically before a prompt, you say like in uh, blah, 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 in the style of whomever you want, like Van Gogh or Picasso. And his name is more popular than Picasso, Da Vinci, Van Gogh. And so essentially this living artist, his style of of art is being learned by these programs. It's generating new novel images, mimicking him, but it's not actually his work, obviously. And people are selling printer or, uh, uh, posters and prints of his work and profiting off of it, but it's not his work. So he's spoken out against that and said that he feels very weird about it. He feels like people are, I mean, he's not profiting off of it right. and people are profiting off of a version of his creativity just filtered through a technological platform. So it's a very interesting question. And it's also like, how do we separate different kinds of art? So think of architecture as art. Mm -hmm. we, we as a society have already decided that, you know, like what do you call a prefabricated build and things like that have long been accepted, right? So mm -hmm. you could take somebody's style of architecture and it's just totally accepted that you can copy it. And we've created scaled versions of that. And there's all sorts of areas of society that we just agree that that's okay versus certain other areas of society like whether it's a book that's written or mm -hmm. a painting that's made like how do you separate that from like somebody coding right we have all these automated versions of coding now where people would say that it was an art form there's a lot of creativity involved but because of the way the technology has evolved we've accepted jumping the line a little bit mm -hmm. i would say like the, the biggest metaphor here that that i would think about is chess because this is the area where ai because of just the nature of chess and how mathematical it can be and the patterns and the combination of just sheer math and computing power and creativity, there we've already seen the power of AI there. Yeah. And most people I think are generally aware that we've created these supercomputers that beat humans. That's that's mm -hmm. been true for a while. There was this this program called Stockfish Eight, which won the world chess championships. A year later, Google had a program called Alpha Zero, which beat the other program in chess, but what was fascinating was, whereas uh, Stockfish 8 was fed like the history of chess and moves and all these other games and were taught all these different moves, et cetera, and then used its own algorithms to improve, the Google Alpha Zero was given no prior strategy, no prior like opening move strategy or anything mm -hmm. like that, wasn't given access to any human games whatsoever or even other computers games. It just played against itself for four hours taught itself chess. Well, it was given the basic rules and played it against itself for four hours. And after four hours of that, it beat Stockfish 8. Mm. So just without any of the collective human knowledge. And if yeah. you combine that with the fact that in chess, it's commonly accepted that to catch a cheater, meaning that they're using AI, the more creative the move, the more likely it is that it came from AI. So if you're using moves that people recognize, 
they're like, all right, that's probably humans learning from other humans. But if it's something that's like totally out of left field, they're like, well, that must have been created by AI. That's yeah. scary because it's saying creativity is the mark of the AI. Yeah, I kind of don't feel like that's creativity though. Like to me that I'm much more comfortable with that because the pure mathematical practice of something that's like basically like a game of statistics is like if that's winnable by AI, that's kind of okay with me as long as people aren't using it in a cheating context versus something that's as like like intimate as human art and that form of creation. Like to me, I don't I don't look at this and say this is creativity, the AI art, the artificial well, let me art. Take that back then. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> well, thanks. But I'll I, sign this. I don't look. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. We should put it up in the office. Yeah. I I like. There's something about it that is creepy in a new level. The idea that like human, actual human creativity is the source of this, but it's being like pulled all together. It's getting better and better every single year. And as much as I I don't like the alarmism around this, I'm kind of, I'm a little sensitive to it and I kind of agree with it. Um, Walter Kern, who's a literary critic, wrote a really great piece about how AI art, in his opinion, is not art at all for Barry Weiss's Common Sense. And he says, her substack, it compiles, sifts, analyzes, and then finally executes, but it doesn't dare. It takes no risks. Only humans, our vulnerable species, can. The effects will only fool the eyes. The mind's eye watches from a deeper place, intuitive and ancient, and it will bear queasy witness to the truth that artif artificial art is merely that, which I think is an interesting thing. Because I don't know if you can ever... Like, there's something about the imperfection of hu like human creativity that I don't know if AI will ever be able to actually create and not just mimic but it's it's kind of it's a spooky question because art is something that's so like deeply a part of our species and something that we evolved to do to create cohesion and come together and express ourselves and it's it's i don't know there's something really next level to me about like here's ai doing that for us i can't tell where this is going though i can't tell whether this is going to go the way of sports where yes there are machines that can move faster than Usain mm -hmm. Bolt. But the fact that it's a human doing it is part of what makes it great. Yeah. Versus other things where I don't even know. Like when I watch, what is it called? Um, Red Notice on Netflix, like the movie. Mm -hmm. To me, that feels like there's some kind of algorithms at work here. And like, there actually, we know in Netflix that there are algorithms at work in terms of putting the right shows in front of people. We could imagine behind the scenes there are algorithms saying, what do people like? What don't they like? What kind of plots work? What don't? We can say with reasonable yeah. certainty that we are some percentage of the way where the algorithms are dictating content now. Obviously, they're not writing the content yet. And the question is, at what point does it stop being art? And mm -hmm. does it become something less interesting? Or does it even matter? Like, are there just people, like, are we going to be 10 years from now watching a ton of AI created TV shows and not caring at all? I, I yeah. want to say we will care but I'm not totally sure. It's also interesting because there are present artists who are using it to just generate ideas or incorporating aspects of the AI art into their own art. And one other quote to kind of go to like the opposite side of the spectrum here that I thought was funny was from Jason Allen, the artist who won the Colorado State Fair with his art. He said, what if we look at it from the other extreme? What if an artist made their art while hanging upside down and being whipped while painting? Should that artist's work be evaluated differently? So basically he's asking like, if even though the quality of my input or the quantity of my input by working with prompts and working with AI um, is more limited, it's still a level of creativity because it needed my like human touch in order to create that. And where do we create the bar to entry? And is it just about the work that you do to get there? Or is it about the final product? It's mm. an interesting question. Yeah, we've, we, we have debates like this going back to ancient times, like the pyramids or the Sphinx, right? Like in some cases, like how something was created is part of the mystery of it all. It makes it more interesting. Mm -hmm. Sometimes also creates ethical issues like slave labor and things like that. Like the how often does matter about yeah. how something was created. Well, let's turn to a totally different subject here. Let's talk about these young people, youngish in New York. It was just recently reported that three New Yorkers, all of them high achieving professionals, died from fentanyl laced cocaine on the very same day back mm -hmm. in March 2021. And this is just coming out in the public square. There's some reporting done by this reporter by, uh, named Margot Patrick in the Wall Street Journal. It's really harrowing. I think anytime yeah. anybody dies, it's harrowing. You look at these pictures of these three people who are in the primes of their lives with really good careers. And 
I think it's touching a nerve. Now it shouldn't like whether somebody's like you know in a you know in a you know outside of the public eye, unemployed, you know, dying of fentanyl-laced heroin, or whether it's somebody working for a big law firm dying from fentanyl-laced cocaine. Mm-hmm. They're all tragic, but this thing seems to have pierced through the public debate. And you combine that with some recent reporting from The Economist saying that cocaine is as prevalent across the world and in this country as it's ever been. Yeah. And it makes you wonder, what are we doing in this drug war? Yeah, and just to put a little color to this story, there's a 40-year-old Credit Suisse executive with a pregnant partner, Bat Holm, a 26-year-old lawyer who lives in the East Village, and a 38-year-old social worker in Greenwich Village who all just happened to use the same tech service um, dealer to get cocaine in the city. And, And it does beg this really important question where we've had decades now of the war on drugs. And the result is that the U.S. buys far more cocaine than anyone else in the world, that production is going up, and that 2% of the population is using it like roughly, which is actually to me much higher than I would have expected. And 20,000 people dying annually as a result, um, many of them due to fentanyl. And so I think it's an important time to kind of pull back and say, okay, clearly the war on drugs hasn't worked. But I also strongly believe that it didn't come out of like this ill will of wanting to go after people. Like there was a genuine moral panic over stories like this essentially back then and how drugs devastate people and legislators feeling like they had a responsibility to fight it. And I think our responsibility now is to to assume good faith of them when they did that, to learn from our mistakes, to not ascribe bad faith and to say, okay, how, how now do we fix this going forward? And I think there are a lot of different paths with decriminalization, with legalization, with uh, legalizing certain substances and not others. And so it's, it's a, I, I want to approach this with epistemic humility and just say like, I think a lot of really brilliant people were wrong on the war on drugs. And I'm probably going to be wrong on tons of stuff that I stay here because I don't know all the answers and nobody really does. But I think learning from our mistakes is the most important thing. Yeah, to your point, these officials were responding to giant national stories like Len Bias dying in 86. And you know he was a basketball player at the University of Maryland who died of a cocaine overdose after he was drafted to the NBA. And I think a lot of people were seeing people like him, famous people, all the way down to just the decay of communities, in large part driven by drugs. And just honestly, this was the tool that they felt like this was the blunt instrument that they tried to use to solve the crisis. And I agree that a lot of these officials, whether they were Reagan all the way down to community leaders, weren't necessarily of ill intent, but there were some policies that they pushed that were really devastating and unequally applied. And I think the biggest is this 100 to 1 gap between how people were penalized for possession of powder cocaine and crack cocaine, which obviously had a huge racial disparity. And so intentions or not, policies like that led to mass incarceration, um, particularly of black Americans. And that has had devastating effects till this day. And so I think that's the most important uh, question is not what people were thinking back in the 80s, but how those policies continue today and need to be rolled back in many ways like we've had so much progress but we're still left with the highest incarceration rate in the world prisons that are packed and law enforcement largely focusing on the wrong things now as for the stats that you brought up we definitely consume more than anybody else per capita the uk has a speed, but we're you know much bigger country what's interesting you said two percent of americans have tried cocaine or have used it, I think, in the past years. Is that what it is? I also saw that 1.2% of 12th graders have tried it in the past 12 mm. months, which is, you know, this is not just That's an issue like for adults. Weirdly expensive drug for 12th graders to be getting their hands on. That's, yeah. was, that's surprising to me. What I find fascinating about this story from the Wall Street Journal, it's it reminds me, when I was a kid coming out of high school, and, and I was in my late teens, early 20s in Staten Island. I had a lot of friends dying in sort of at a certain phase of the opioid epidemic. And so that was jarring because of how close it was to home, like both mm-hmm. literally the people I was friends with, some of my best friends, but also just because it was infused into our culture. This story did that to me too, because now I'm a professional in New York. Like one of these people was like a law school graduate from Columbia and another guy graduated from Harvard. And you see these people are roughly the same age as me. and. When they go through the details, you see delivery services, you have people who are having like tough days, like, you know, one's a social worker who is like working really hard, another one had a baby on the way and checked himself into a hotel, seemed like he was stressed out. And what I think at a cultural level, what's really jarring about this is 
how it's just happening below the surface. Mm-hmm. I've only seen cocaine in my life once, but I've mm-hmm. been around people who've taken cocaine a lot in my life. You can tell after a while who's doing it and who isn't, you think. But then I look at this story and I'm like, I'm not sure I would have known if I was in these people's lives. And you read some of the accounts of the parents. A lot of people didn't know. And I think that's yeah. what's scary is because fentanyl, you don't have to take a lot of it. Like a very small yeah. amount of that could wipe out you know, the, in this case, a bunch of people on the same day, it's it's a really scary phenomenon. Yeah, I think it's the difference between like the classic idea of someone dying from drugs and having this slow descent into addiction and you can see it from a mile away that that's kind of where they're headed versus now with fentanyl, it's like you, you don't even have to be addicted to it. You could just do it one night while you're out partying and yeah. then die as a result. Like it's, I think that's why this is so acutely shocking to people, especially since the rates of that happening to people are going up and, it's it seems more random. It seems like people who didn't have that descent, who didn't have the warning signs, who didn't have moments of intervention and do you need help or can we check you into here? It's right. it's much more sudden, and I think these stories really clarify that. Yeah, and you know, going back to when I was a kid in Staten Island, which was hit really hard, as hard as a lot of places in this country, back then we knew people had issues. So mm-hmm. the people who passed away, there were warning signs. We got alarmed about it. People, we tried really hard. In certain cases, people went to rehab multiple times. What makes me really scared for people going through this right now is just how sudden it could be. Yeah, There aren't the warning signs. There aren't these sort of checks within the system. And those checks were imperfect back then. A lot of people, mm-hmm. like I would say more people than not, still the checks didn't solve the issue. Uh, but this is scary. And I think if we take a step back, this is what we talk about legalization. I think there's like this simplification of the debate, which is that we either need... Oregon, which we talked about in our previous segment, or we need the status quo of locking people up and you know doing next to nothing about treatment. And there's got to be some kind of middle ground here where we lock yeah. up fewer people in this country, we get them the treatment that they need, and then we take some risks, right? Because I think of yeah. even our own coverage on this kind of stuff. We, we're so hard on the Chase of Brudines of the world, and they deserve it in a lot of cases. But at the same time, it takes some courage to loosen things up and say, all right, we need to do things differently. Yeah, I think there's a difference between loosening things up and like completely untying things and saying like, not only are we going to not go after drug offenses, but then we're also going to not go after vagrancy at the same time. Or like in the case of Oregon saying, um, yeah, we won't we won't prosecute people for drugs and we want them to get help and they'll get help. Like that's not the real world. In Oregon, they I think it was 0.85% of people who actually opted into treatment. And so we have examples around the world like Portugal where where treatment is compelled if you keep ending up in the system. And I think like it's a bunch of trade-offs and the idea that we can just let people live on the streets and do drugs and be like tripping on the street and potentially harming other people in the process and degrading quality of life. It's not to demonize them. It's to say, not only does that harm like the the community to have that just happening out on your streets it's also this individual actively harming themselves and so i don't think there's this perfect world where you just say everyone can do whatever they want i think it requires the idea that we can afford people as long as we adequately inform them about the dangers of drugs and especially i think there's a lack of conversation around like there's a there's a libertarian strain of drug positive legalization versus i'm like an an anti-drug person, but I'm pro-legalization. And I think that's a trade-off that you have to kind of have at some point because it's not a net positive for everyone. And giving people the freedom to choose to engage in drug use with the information that's required, especially since we're also schooling people with public schools, I think that's a different question from saying like, oh, now like we're going to hand you needles and you can live on the streets and, and do whatever you want. Like I... And it's, there's no libertarian utopia here. Yeah. I do think the needle exchange debate is very complicated. And, you know, shout out to some of our members of our team, Wes, uh, who did it. We did a story way back when, and we'll link to it in the show notes, where it's tough. Like, because a lot of times with the needle exchange, it's not you're saying we want to incentivize drug use. We want to incentivize clean drug use. We want to we kind of attract people yeah, I don't know. off the streets. Like I don't, it, you know, I just, to me though, that's, those aren't people, that's the government enabling people and not enabling them to get help. But let's say it wasn't even the government. Let's say the government decriminalizes needle exchange programs yeah, and it's non Well, I think I have, I, that, nonprofits, know? I have a totally different stance on, yeah. but the idea that the government would be giving people the tools to actively harm themselves, to me, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. Yeah, I think with the government, not to go down this segue, I think what they would say is, 
if if it isn't for the needle exchange where we could test for things like fentanyl, et cetera, they're going to actually, in more more likely than not, harm themselves without our intervention. But let's 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 yeah let's hit pause on that. that debate for a second and say, of course, we're not the only ones who deal with this. Our demand is fueling a massive crisis in other countries, including Latin America. And you're starting to see a different kind of debate, whereas throughout the 80s and 90s, you had Latin American countries, by and large, who were pressured by the United States to do eradication programs, wreak havoc on their own populations. And in many cases, like the DEA and other law enforcement agencies in the United States were dictating the politics of other countries. You're starting to see a shift in Latin American politics. And this Economist article talks about it. It talks about, for instance, Colombia. And our Secretary of State, this is a watershed moment that wasn't even reported that much. Our Secretary of State gave a hat tip to the President of Colombia saying that the that Joe Biden supported the more holistic approach that Colombia is taking here, which is huge given our history in that country and others. And so hopefully we can support common sense reforms elsewhere because we're we often talk about the drug problem like it's being inflicted on us by mm -hmm. other countries but i see it the other way i think in many ways our demand is fueling as many if not more issues in other countries as we're doing as they're inflicting on us yeah i mean i think it's definitely mutual i i understand the argument that for being wanting to shore up borders because that's the way that it gets there but i don't think that placing the blame on the countries that are like exporting it to us with our demand is a fair thing to do. But I mean, I think for me, this really comes down to the idea that there are like, you're never going to get rid of drugs. You're like, of course, prohibition. Like, I think it'd probably be better if we had no alcohol in the world, but we have alcohol in the world and it only became more dangerous by making it illegal. Yeah. And I think accepting that is one thing, accepting the fact that there are already people who have pre-existing addictions that need help is one thing, but then taking a, like taking a pro-drug stance or or just like kind of do your thing or it's not that harmful. Um, like I think that is where things get dangerous because in an ideal world, we wanna raise a generation of people who's resistant to that, who have seen the consequences, who understand the consequences of addiction and who can be entrusted in a system where it's legalized, but won't actually make that decision for themselves. So I think there's like a question of how do we raise the next generation? And then there's also the question of how do we deal with the people who already are pulled down this road in the illegal system that we have right now? Yeah, because you think about, this is when we talked about Portugal versus Oregon. One of the primary mechanisms we have to treat people is trying to create magnets for people seeking help. Mm -hmm. And if we have this sort of Reaganite system of we're going to lock you up for years for possession, it makes it really hard for people to come forward and say, I have a problem. Never mind all the resources that we spend locking people up and all the policing that needs to happen to just say mere possession. And, and we can say possession is legal or decriminalized while also saying certain behaviors that people are more likely to partake in because they're on drugs, you know, vandalism, things like that, yeah. stealing, yada, yada. Those are still criminal. Yeah, I know? just definitely don't agree um, with proposals that just making possession legal or not prosecuting possession fixes anything because I think the underlying problem is that making it illegal to get it to that person is what makes it so profitable to be a drug dealer and also it makes it so much more dangerous because the substances are uncontrolled. Like yeah, this so you're situation, like you want to go further? Yeah, probably, no, I mean, yeah. I I think that 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 doesn't really fix anything. That just decriminalizes people doing the same thing that they yeah, were already to doing. To be clear, but, I agree. I don't think. Yeah, that no, I don't think just that's your stance. Either. Yeah, but, yeah. But talking about criminal justice reform, policing, etc., I do think that there's some common ground here for conservatives and liberals because. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of money going to this that's being wasted in terms of like the war on drugs. And then liberals, of course, like we liberals want decarceration. And then there are people in the middle, like libertarians who probably are amenable both arguments. Mm -hmm. uh, the creator of The Wire, David Simon, has talked a lot about this, particularly uh, with Baltimore. And he talks about just how, we don't often talk about police being the victims in some cases of this, but they're caught up in this too. Let's listen to this interview that he recently did. But The Wire, which we worked on, began working on 20 years ago, was, uh, if it had one policy argument to make, and it was very blunt about it, I thought, it was, and the drug war. The drug war has not only destroyed communities and families and individuals, built prisons and filled them. It's destroyed law enforcement. It's made uh, that which is the most essential police work um, less rewarded, less heralded than going up on the bunch of corners and making your stats and grabbing a bunch of guys and getting paid for doing that which doesn't actually make us safer. 
And while it's while it's been uh, waged, while we've done this, we've trained generations of cops how not to solve murders, solve robberies, solve rapes, how not to patrol their posts, you know, to prevent crimes against people. We've taught them how to make arrests. And so the clearance rates in places like Baltimore and Chicago and elsewhere have nosedived. The national clearance rate for murder when I was in the homicide unit in the late 80s was 70%. It's now 35%, which means your chance of putting anyone in jail for a murder has gone from 4 in 10 in Baltimore to 1 in 10 once you shake the cases out. So we're not doing police work anymore. Ricky, I don't have much more to add than that other than I completely agree with what he's saying. Learning from mistakes on this and also not castigating some experiments, even though I think there have been irresponsible experiments with how to uh, change our status quo with drug use. I think learning from what we've done and tried is a really important endeavor and doing that, uh, ascribing good faith to people and knowing that we all don't want to see people addicted and dying and harming themselves and families destroyed is an important place to start. Yeah, and one a book recommendation, actually circling back to something you said earlier, this is a professor at Yale, uh, James Foreman Jr., who wrote a book called Lop Locking Up Our Own. And it's actually all about, when you're talking about a generosity of spirit from the origins of the drug war, uh, he goes back and looks at how it was way more complicated than the way the drug war is being portrayed as like this, you know, infliction just by mm -hmm. Reagan and Bill Clinton and Joe Biden and, mm -hmm. you know, white you know, stodgy politicians. He talks about how civil rights groups and local community leaders were actually talking about under-policing of the war on drugs in certain hard-hit communities. And so it was very complicated. We all made, a, not we, I mean, I wasn't old enough to make decisions, but our, a lot of different segments of society overcorrected yeah, and had really good reasons for caring about a certain blight within their communities. And instead of, I think, casting blame, I think we just got to look to the future and do better. Well, with that, Ricky, we have a voicemail. Let's let's listen to this. Uh, this is uh, about a segment we did about licensing a couple episodes ago. Hey, it's Paul from Westchester County in New York. And funny, you gave the phone number. This is the first time I've actually had some input that I wanted to give you on your debate because I love hearing from you guys and find it very informative. But I'm a local electrical contractor in Westchester County, and a couple of points is that there's a licensing bureau that mostly covers to make sure contractors have insurance and there's some regress for consumers if they have a complaint about a contractor. So in a way, it's actually um, there's no competency test for like painters or landscapers or carpenters. It's very easy to obtain. All they need is insurance. So I think that's actually a good way to have a license for trades that need some specific skill set and uh, plumbers, electricians. That's also a good thing to have a licensing bureau for that also. So I appreciate this voicemail. And my position, and, and I think yours is similar, is I wasn't against all licensing. And I mm -hmm. think this is a great, I'm glad he provided this example because this is, I don't know everything about the licensing regime he's talking about, but what yeah. he's describing seems to make a lot of sense. And that's the kind of licensing regime I could probably get behind. Yeah, and I think there's definitely, because it's such a local issue, there's a whole spread of um, like really crazy licensing laws like florists in Louisiana right. to this, which sounds kind of reasonable. But also there's a potential world where you could have a provision that it's like illegal to do certain work without um, insurance. And that doesn't necessarily have to be tied to licensing, but it doesn't sound like from his description, this is an especially prohibitive law. And so right. as a, a local government proponent, I'm, I'm all for it if that's what they want to do. <laughs> yeah, you think about driving a car, we separate the insurance from the license. You have to go get your yeah. driver's license, learn how to drive a car. But if you want to own a car, you have to have insurance. If you want to rent a car, often, depending on where you are, you might need to get insurance or you might want insurance. Mm -hmm. And that insurance isn't necessarily tied to the license, but you are required to have it in certain circumstances. Well, uh, this was a fun episode. We'll be right back on Thursday, same time and place. Make sure that you go and rate, review, and subscribe our, to our podcast. Share it with our friends. We're seeing a lot of momentum out there. Our audience is growing like never before. And we're extremely grateful to you. If you want, you can leave us a voicemail. Again, that number is 321-200-0570. That's 321-200-0570. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>